Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
British man Neil Entwistle was once an intelligent university graduate with IT qualifications that could have taken him far in life. At 27 years old, he was a husband and a father on the first joyous steps to a new family life. Now he had little stimulation and little to look at day after day in the tiny space he could barely call his own. He was a world away from his expensive family rental in the suburbs of Hopkinton, Massachusetts. The gray concrete floor was in stark contrast to the chipped, rusting, and blue-painted metal gate that boxed in his grim cell. He was an inmate at Middlesex County Jail in Cambridge, an ugly gray high-rise building regular inmates called the Slammer in the Sky. On the right, there was a metal bed firmly attached to the wall with a thin mattress thrown on top. On the left, less than two feet away, was a toilet and small wash basin, also both screwed into a concrete wall. Entwistle had been charged with the brutal murder of his 27-year-old wife, Rachel, and his nine-month-old baby, Lillian. Both had died from gunshot wounds. Both shots were fired at close range. Their killer stood over them, arm outstretched, finger on the trigger, and took their lives in a matter of seconds. Mother and baby had been found, huddled together on the bed of the master bedroom, in their rented home, at Six Cubs Path in Hopkinton, Massachusetts. Their bodies, now starting to decompose, were found by police officers carrying out a second welfare check. After a weekend of worry from family and friends, Neil was nowhere to be found. As investigations gathered pace, Neil reappeared. He was in England at his parents' home in Nottinghamshire. In a recorded telephone interview with the Massachusetts State Police, Neil claims to have found the bodies of his family and, in a devastated state, didn't call 911. He didn't alert anyone to the sudden, violent deaths of his wife and baby. Instead, he drove to Logan International Airport in Boston and took a one-way flight out of the United States and into London. Neil Entwistle claimed he was innocent and had no involvement in the execution of Rachel and Lillian. The bleak concrete cell had been his home since his arrest, weeks after the murders in January 2006. Now... It was 2008, and his trial for the cold-blooded murder of his family was about to begin. He asked me uh, if, uh, if uh, Rachel and Lily could be buried together. Did he say anything further? Yes, he says, because that's the way I left them. I mean, that's the way I found them. And that's your best recollection of what he said? That's exactly what he said. On June 6, 2008, Neil sat at the defense table in a dark suit and white shirt watching the courtroom around him at Middlesex County Superior Court in Woburn, Massachusetts. Quietly observing his surroundings, his eyes flickered from one side of the courtroom to the other. He sat up straight and appeared calm and in control. He was flanked by two defense attorneys, Elliot Weinstein and Stephanie Page, hired by Neil's parents were convinced of his innocence. They had been preparing for this day for two years. Neil's parents, Cliff and Yvonne Entwistle, flew in from their home in Worksop, Nottinghamshire, in England, for the trial of their son. Sitting on the pews behind his defense table, they provided Neil with clean shirts each day. As the trial got underway, 
It was probably the first time they heard their son's voice on tape as he was questioned by Massachusetts State Trooper Manning. In a two-hour phone call to the UK, the day after his family's bodies had been found, it was a tape recording with statements from Neil. His defense team knew gave the prosecution material to work with. What are you going to do now, Neil? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. Did it, did it ever cross your mind that when you came back home and you found your wife and daughter like that in bed and you said that you pretty much you right away you, you thought they were dead, it never crossed your mind whatsoever to call 911? No. And call for an ambulance or no. call the police? No. 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 I know it's difficult. I'm sure. I'm sure it's very difficult. But I, I need when, when, when I first looked, it, it just looked like she was asleep. Just the first, the first thing I noticed was just her color. She was in a pale, and then, and then as I got closer, I could see the blood, and that's when I saw. Lily, Lily's the top half of the the face was out, and um, I I pulled the the covers back and <sighs> uh, that's when I saw Lily. Lily was such a mess. Where did you see some blood, sir? Well, there was there was there wasn't any on Rachel. I, I didn't I couldn't see anything on Rachel. It was all on it was all on Lily, and then she. The, what sticks in my mind is that a whole a whole mouth mouth and nose. Um, and covered, they were. It was almost like it. It was bubbles. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I mean, it was obvious that they were. That it was obvious that they weren't alive anymore. Okay. And what did what did you think happened to them? Well, I, I, I didn't know what I. I mean, looking back on it now, it's. I don't remember seeing the house disturbed. It doesn't look like we were robbed. I don't see why anyone would have had the opportunity to do that. It was such a small window of time that I was out. I didn't know where to go from there. And she wound up at the airport. I ended up back there. I, I drove around for a while. I did have to. I filled up with gas again. I, you know, I just wandered around for a while, and then... Did you buy anything? Did you get a cup of coffee? Did you get something to eat? Um, I don't think so. No, I didn't show sure, no. Okay. Did you ask for help? No. Did you talk to anybody? No. Did you make any calls? No. Did you call home? No. Okay. 
And then, then you stayed at the airport? Uh, I was there for a while and then I thought, I think then it, it, it was kind of coming together and I realized that, I mean, it had I mean, been a while by this point, but, you know, since I'd found them, we were, we were talking a lot of hours and it was... Right. Then I wanted to kind of get home and, and do something about it and I, I got back in the car and left the airport. Okay. And what did you do? Well, then I started to drive to, um, how I thought, to get back to Hopkinton. I don't know where I went. I certainly didn't get anywhere quickly. Okay. Were you frustrated or were you scared? I suppose scared, yeah. Just that... Just a what? I then I I got to the point that I just needed to to be with someone. Okay, so what what did you decide to do to be with somebody? To come home to my parents. On the prosecution table, Assistant District Attorney Michael Fabry sat with his team ready to present their version of events to the jury. They too had been preparing for this case for the last two years. In those last few months, Fabry had handed over all his other cases to colleagues so he could focus solely on the Entwistle case. It was a high-profile family murder and a case in the media spotlight, both at home and abroad. The investigation into the murder of Rachel and Lillian had been long and complicated. Rachel's mother and stepfather, Priscilla and Joe Matarazzo, lost their daughter and granddaughter on that day in 2006. Senseless murders that devastated their entire family beyond words. Grasping their deaths and coming to terms with their lives being ended in the blink of an eye was an ongoing process. Neil Entwistle was their son-in-law. They'd invited him into their home, welcomed the family to stay at their Carver home with them while they found their feet in their own home in the area. They had trusted him completely. Now... They were facing him across a crowded courtroom as he sat accused of the most horrific crime imaginable. The theory of the prosecution team was clear. Neil had killed his family and then intended to take his own life. Only when it came to it, when it reached that point of firing a bullet into his body or taking a knife to his skin, he could not bring himself to do it. He failed in his mission of murder-suicide. His actions after that were all from a man trying to cover up and get away with murder. It was not a suggestion that the prosecution wanted to present to the jury. Or did they need to? Any risk of jury members seeing Neil Entwistle in a sympathetic light needed to be avoided. They wanted Neil to be seen as the cold-blooded, heartless killer they firmly believed him to be. When Rachel and Lillian were discovered inside the house on Sunday, January 22, 2006, it shocked the Hopkinton Police Department. The bodies had been missed during the first welfare check the evening before, laying on the master bed, covered completely by the comforter, a blanket, and pillows. The odor that would highlight their presence to those who are familiar with the terrible smell had not yet risen to the air. To tell Rachel's family and friends who were already at Hopkinton's police station, filling in missing persons reports, 
that Rachel and Lillian's body had been there all along is devastating. While Priscilla was outside the home on Saturday morning knocking on the door and ringing her daughter's cell phone, while Rachel's friend Joanna was doing the same that evening and then spent Saturday night outside in her car on the driveway with her sister Maureen, they were waiting for any sign of the family coming home or any news that they had been located and were safe. They had no idea Rachel and Lillian already lay dead in the bedroom upstairs. One person was notably missing from the tragic scene. Neil Entwistle was not in the house. There was no sign of where he might be. It is real, and, and something happened over here. And I, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get as much information as I can. Yeah. And I'm taking you, uh, I'm believing what you tell me. Only, um, I can tell you, I have a hard time understanding why you, want, why you didn't call 911. Yeah, I can. I can see that. Um, I'd like to throw out there that I think that um, I'm concerned that maybe, maybe just something totally out of character might have occurred. Out of character. Yeah, just just out of character. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're investigating this. Uh, we're going to investigate it, and uh, you've been you've been very helpful with with the the information that you've. Uh, you provided to us, okay? Yeah. But I'm concerned because you said that uh, you you wanted to hurt yourself. And you wanted to hurt yourself right away. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm wondering if there was a reason for that. I don't. Um, I don't understand. Well, more, I'm asking you: Is there? Is there something that may have occurred for you to want to do that? I... No, I... I, I don't know why that's what I, I wanted to do, and I don't know why I didn't think to call the police first, but... But what? It, well, it, you know, to say to want to do that is out of character is... Um, I don't know if it is or not. I, I don't, you know, faced with being that. That's just, just what I, just what went through my mind. What, what went through your mind to go downstairs and get a knife and wanted to kill yourself? Yeah, I mean, not so much wanting to get the knife and and kill myself, but just. Almost, almost like wanting to, almost wanting to be with them. Almost, yeah, but you took an awful lot of steps not to be with them. How do you, I, I well, think, I don't think, I, I'm, I'm wondering, was there a situation that took place at the house? Do you mean? Do you mean if I had anything? I'm asking you. Did you? I'm wondering. Did, 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 was there any kind of situation that took place at the house no. that caused you to immediately, instead of calling the police, wanting to kill yourself? God, no. No. You sure? I. 
I was. Yeah. I'm not saying you did anything. I'm just asking you. I'm trying to rule out all possibilities of what could have taken place there. No, no, no. Are you sure? Yeah, because because why? Just of course that. No, I I couldn't do that. Why? Why would I do that? I don't know. Could be a million reasons. Could be no reasons. I don't know. I'm. I'm not. I'm not saying you did it. I'm asking you if a situation took place that was out of character for you and your wife, and this situation happened. No. No. Nothing. It. It. It was just a normal. It's just a normal day. In any case of sudden death. An autopsy is often the only way the answers to how they died are found. When Rachel and Lillian Entwistle were found in the bedroom, there were no immediate and obvious signs of trauma. Rachel lay on her left side, on the bed with her arm draped around baby Lillian, who lay tucked into her mother. The autopsies carried out by medical examiner Dr. William Zane revealed two gunshots were fired. Rachel was shot in the head and baby Lillian in the chest the bullet going through her body and into the chest of Rachel, who was cradling her. Within days of the murders, Joe Matarazzo and Rachel's stepfather discovered a set of keys to his gun locks in his home was missing. Alarmed, he contacted police investigators. Forensic experts removed Joe's gun collection and tested each weapon for DNA. They made comparisons to the findings at autopsy for the type of gun that could have caused those injuries. One of those weapons, a Colt 22 handgun, proved to be the weapon used to kill Rachel and Lillian. On the inside and outside of the muzzle, Rachel's DNA was found. Rachel didn't have any interest in guns, and had never handled or been near any of Joe's guns. On the grip of the handgun and the ammunition box, Neil's DNA had been found linking him to the murder weapon, and its recent use. After the family had been shot dead... The gun had been returned to its place and locked up inside Joe's home. Both Priscilla and Joe had solid alibis for the time Rachel and Lillian were murdered. They had access to the murder weapon, but were not their killer. There were only two other people who knew where those sets of keys were in the house and knew which guns Joe had in the house. People had lived there alongside them for months before they moved into their own home. People who still had the keys to the Carver home, they had moved out of just 10 days before the horrific set of events. Neil had maintained his innocence since the telephone interview he gave from his parents' home in England. Everyone expected a plea of innocence and a declaration of horror and shock at finding Rachel and Lillian dead from his defense attorneys. A packed courtroom listened intently as seasoned Boston criminal defense attorney Elliot Weinstein delivered the foundation of their defense. In the two years of preparing for this trial, a new version of events had now emerged and was the cornerstone of Neal's defense strategy. This was the explanation for what happened at Six Cubs Path and had not been put forward by Neal before. Maintaining innocence, unable to explain his actions, and without evidence of any third party involved, this was a desperate defense to try and deliver doubt to the jury by giving them a different person who pulled the trigger that fateful day. 
On January 20, 2006, Neil Entwistle's world changed, never to be the same. You know, Neil loved his wife, and Neil loved his daughter. On January 20th, he lost them both. Perhaps you ask yourselves, if Neil didn't do it, then who did? But you know this, things aren't always as they first appear to be. That's why investigators are supposed to do their work unbiased and with an open mind, willing to follow all trails wherever they may lead. Neil found Rachel and Lilio. He saw Joe's gun on the sheet. He reacted emotionally. He moved them. He covered them. What loving father wouldn't? What loving husband wouldn't? Isn't that exactly what he was conveying to Joe Matarazzo when he spoke to him on the phone from England? That's how I found them. That's how I left them. The unexpected, the unimaginable had happened. When he was talking with Sergeant Manning, Neil's foremost purpose was to protect Rachel's memory, to protect her honor. He wasn't going to tell Sergeant Manning that he found Joe's gun and returned it to Carver. Sergeant Manning, the police detective, assumed that someone other than Rachel was responsible. Neil found Rachel and Lillian dead. Neil saw the 22 and knew instantly what happened. And in those moments, he knew what he had to do and what he couldn't do. He had to get the 22 back to Carver. And he couldn't call the police because he couldn't tell them what Rachel did. There were only two gunshots. First, Rachel put Lillian over where she thought her heart was and shot her. The bullet traveled through the baby and into Rachel's left breast. The breast is just a mass of fatty tissue. The pain receptors are almost non-existent. You know the breast wound was the first wound because of the bruising. Her heart was still beating when she fired that non-fatal shot. Then she pointed the gun toward her head, steadied it with both hands, and fired. Unfortunately, she struck herself in the forehead, and her death was instantaneous. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence, as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, 
June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. In a criminal trial, the defendant does not have to prove their innocence. They don't have to put on a defense to the charges against them at all, unless they want to. It's up to the prosecution to prove the defendant is guilty. Elliot Weinstein implanted the idea into the minds of the jury that this wasn't homicide at all, that it was a murder-suicide at the hands of Rachel herself, ending her own life and tragically taking nine-month-old Lily with her. Neil's defense team had next to no evidence to work with that supported their version of events that Rachel had shot Lillian, and then herself. They clung to the forensic findings of a small volume of gunshot residue on Rachel's hands, tiny particles of dust-like substance that burst from a firearm muzzle as it's fired. Neil's defense used this finding as the exemplar that meant Rachel must have been the one to fire the gun. Yet, by their own admission, there are three ways gunshot residue can settle on a person's hands. If they fired the gun, if they handled the gun, or if they were close to the gun when it was fired, the manner of Rachel's death, the brutally close distance the Colt 22 was positioned, pointed at her head in a downward trajectory when it was fired, leaves an obvious and clear conclusion. It was evidence that proved very little. Lead prosecutor Michael Fabry knew this was one possible defense strategy. Neil's attorney might use. The introduction of an alternative suspect is an age-old tactic in the defense handbook. He had tried to prepare Rachel's family as much as he could. It did not deter him from the strength of his case against Neil. The police investigation had been extensive. They had unearthed information that would challenge the notion of the loving, caring husband and father who lived for his wife and baby daughter. Despite the image the defense wanted to portray, the evidence suggested something quite different was going on. Neil Entwistle was a chameleon, a charlatan who was quiet and unassuming on one side, yet bold and deceitful on the other. He seemed to need the approval of others. He desired attention and admiration through success and wealth. He wanted to come across as together, successful, and a high earner, enabling him to provide a more than comfortable lifestyle for his family. He was the true definition of the duck swimming calmly across a lake. On the surface, he's calm, in control, taking his time without a worry in the world. Underneath the water's surface, his legs are going frantically, steering this way and that, trying to decide where to go, what to do in no orderly fashion. There was a desperation in that paddling. An increased sense of urgency was getting stronger and stronger as time moved forward. The image he portrayed to others was important to him, but that image was not the real Neil Entwistle. Information technology, computers, and the internet were Neil Entwistle's playground. He was confident in how to operate online. The anonymity of the internet and the safe distance it provided him encouraged an inflated arrogance. 
It's no surprise that Neil Entwistle had some internet activities that didn't match his life in the real world. When he arrived in Carver a few weeks after Rachel in the fall of 2005, he spent his days on the computer in his in-law's office they had set up above the garage. They'd hear the computer fan whirling on and off, the clicking of the keyboard and mouse as he worked. He was applying for jobs and attending interviews. He told them he was still working with his company he set up in England, Embedded Technologies. They believed this was earning him a wage. He seemed to have cash available. He was keen to pay his way for his family. The reality was that any money he spent was from his sizable overdraft and a total of 18 credit cards that were fast reaching their maximum limit. When the family found Six Cups Path in Hopkinton, Neil was excited to secure the home. The large four-bedroom house was $2,700 per month, and he laid down three months' rent in advance. The white SUV BMW X3 was leased for $400 per month. Both were monthly payments he couldn't afford. Neil told his family he had secured a $100,000 tech contract, paying him $10,000 per month. This wasn't true. It was a fabrication. Lies from a man who needed to inflate his ego. Be pretentious and masquerade as this big successful businessman. Back in England, before the couple moved to Massachusetts in the fall of 2005, Neil had experimented online with ways to make extra money next to his full-time IT job. He had a profile set up on the selling site eBay and a PayPal account to deal with the money transactions. Although he didn't make a lot of money from it, selling computer parts here and there gave him a little extra spending money. When he arrived in the United States with big dreams of power jobs and more than a comfortable wage, he was disappointed not to find employment quickly. His eBay selling multiplied to numerous different profiles and accounts. He turned into a seller who does not provide the goods his customers have paid him for. His ratings plummeted and his email filled up with complaints and refund demands. Neil sent them pre-written standard responses, assuring them he was genuine and the goods had been sent. More lies, and that was only the beginning. Neil had several co.uk websites registered to his student accommodation address in York, in the UK. He was grasping at any opportunity to make money and fast. Down in the depths of these scams and schemes included porn websites, make millions fast websites, and websites selling everything from sex manuals to the secrets of online casinos. Neil, it would seem, was not picky. He hosted a website hooking people into hosting porn sites, telling them they'd make thousands per month doing it. He hosted a sex website offering images of underage girls and live sex camera footage. All were desperate and feeble attempts to earn money fast via the internet. Yet it was clear by his finances, none of these schemes were achieving what he had hoped for. Neil Entwistle was tumbling down a one-way street that didn't end in gold. During police investigations, it was uncovered that some of these schemes Neil had a hand in way before he moved to the U.S. with Rachel. He was dabbling in the seedy internet world for years before they arrived at Six Cubs Path. The move to the U.S. did not change this individual from good to bad. The seeds of his dark mind and delight for deception were already in place. His outward polite, well-spoken, educated, gentlemanly image remained intact. 
Yet behind the computer screen, there was an entirely different version of Neil. It wasn't just his lack of employment and poor finances that Neil was hiding from his family. And amongst his scams and get-rich-quick schemes, yet another side of his multi-layered personality was lurking. And this one was altogether more sinister. Back in August of 2005, within days after Rachel Antwistle and Lillian leaving for the United States, that man joined Adult Friend Finder and starts looking for sexual interest elsewhere. These records also show that that same Neil Entwistle, who claims to be the deep and loving husband of Rachel and father of Lillian, late in fall, early winter, he Googled the website on bankruptcy. Later in December, he began looking at websites about escorts in the Worcester area, Hopkinton area, Westboro area. He viewed some maps of some of those escort services. I saw your listing and read with interest. I have only just joined the site, so I've only just started to browse all the listings. Your picture stands out from the crowd. I hope you don't mind me saying, but you are truly beautiful. I'm currently in a relationship, but I would like a bit more fun in the bedroom. What happens in the future, we will not consider now. What does that say about the depth and level of his relationship and commitment to his wife? We heard a lot of testimony in this case about the loving, stable relationship and the care that supposedly Neil Entwistle felt for his wife and daughter. They want to show you photographs like this, I suggest, to drive your sympathy. But they don't want you to look inside that computer. Together with all the other evidence, you're going to see the two sides of Neil Entwistle. You'll learn that the visits to the escort sites continued in early January 2006. You'll also learn that in the days just before January 20th, 2006, the defendant, Neil Whistle visited websites about killing and suicide. Joe Matarazzo's gun had been removed from the home in Carver, used in the murders, and then returned inside the Carver home. The prosecution believed that Neil Entwistle did travel to the Carver home on that fateful Friday, just as he had claimed, but he did have the means to get inside the house and his purpose was not to inform Priscilla of the terrible scene he had just found. It was to return Joe's gun unseen and unnoticed. In the timeline of events that investigators were able to build around the murders and Neil's movements, there is one time frame that didn't add up. Neil flew out of Logan International Airport in Boston on the morning after the murders. He landed at London Heathrow around 7 p.m. UK time. It is 160 miles from London to Worksop in Nottinghamshire, where his parents lived. He hired a car at Heathrow, and the drive should have taken him just under three hours getting him there, before midnight on Saturday, the 21st, January 2006. Neil Entwistle did not arrive at his parents' home until the morning of Monday the 23rd, January. 36 hours unaccounted for with an overnight hotel stay 
What Neil was doing in those long hours have never been explained. His lies didn't stop after he had fled to England. After days inside his parents' modest home, besieged by the reporters outside, all wanting an exclusive on the unfolding story, Neil had gone to London to visit friends. While there, he recounted what happened in America. Benjamin Pryor and Dashiell Munding were friends from York Uni, where they had also become friends with Rachel, friends who at the time had no reason to think anything other than what Neil was telling them was true. Over dinner, Neil told them how he had found Rachel and Lillian dead. He said he had called 911 for help, and he had gone straight to Priscilla to tell her the horrendous news. He explained how the family had all gathered in the Carver home, shocked and heartbroken before he had decided to fly home to England. None of these words were true. Once again, Neil couldn't resist telling a version of events that portrayed him in the best light, that elicited the maximum sympathy and attention as it that elicited the maximum sympathy and attention as his bravery was admired. After 18 days of witnesses and evidence, Michael Fabry for the prosecution was ready to give his closing statement to the jury. His final chance to present the state's case against Neil Entwistle and to address the validity of some of the accusations that had been made by the defense. Let's talk about this suicide. They want to talk about some whys. Let's talk about why would Rachel commit suicide? Is there any evidence that's before you that suggests that she had the desire or the intent to commit suicide? She was back home. She had her home. She had her car. She had her family. And she thought she had a loving husband. They want to suggest that maybe because they couldn't have sex in the Carver home. Well, now she has her Huntington home. As if that would have been a reason to commit suicide. It doesn't make sense. She had her family. She had her friends. She was happy. She had no reason to commit suicide. You're going to commit suicide at a distance? Dr. Zane? Temple, mouth, chin. And the whole concept of committing suicide while shooting through another person makes no common sense, ladies and gentlemen. And look at it this way. Okay, Rachel's going to commit suicide by shooting through Lillian, and she fails at doing that. So now she's going to take the chance, let's hold it at a distance, and maybe I'm going to fail again and maim myself. That makes no sense, ladies and gentlemen. Think about logistically how she would do that. She's holding her baby. She shoots Lillian into herself as if that's not going to cause pain. And then she has to, with her two hands, at a distance again. Remember the stippling testimony. Recall that. Recall how it has to be at least six inches away. No evidence of a contact shot or a close shot. It makes no sense. And the scene itself, ladies and gentlemen, suggests that this was on a suicide. The next morning, not 24 hours after he supposedly came home and found his wife and daughter dead by suicide, he's at the British Airway ticket counter, calmly and casually ordering 
a one-way ticket. The two sides of Neil and Whistle. Unimaginable, ladies and gentlemen. Your wife and daughter lying dead in bed, whether by murder or suicide, and you see fresh bubbles, you don't know when this happened, and you don't call 911 and seek help for them? Unimaginable. Let's look at the why in terms of Neil Entwistle. Certainly, I suggest to you that trying to com comprehend or accept the fact that a husband would murder his wife and child, it's, it's not an easy task. But the why sometimes doesn't make sense. There could be no reason. There could be a million reasons. I suggest that the evidence shows that he was the one who came here, did not have friends, did not have family, was trying to get a job, but was failing at that. Was trying at his business, but was failing at that. He was failing to provide for his family. And whether that justifies homicide, I'm not going to stand here and say that it makes any sense. But he got to the tipping point, his own tipping point. And for whatever reason, he decided to follow through, murder his wife and his child. There is one person responsible for those murders. And that man is sitting right over there. He's the one who pulled that trigger twice. Put a bullet in the head of Rachel Antwistle, put a bullet through the body of Lillian Antwistle. Neil Antwistle and no one else is responsible for these murders. And I most respectfully ask you to go in there, put the Commonwealth to its task, deliberate, scrutinize every piece of evidence, and when you're through, I'm confident that you will come to the same conclusion that this was not a suicide, this was not a stranger homicide, that it unfortunately was a homicide committed by a husband against his family. There were 170 people in the original jury pool for the trial. Jury selection took two days and settled on the final 16. It was an equal split of eight men and eight women who had the task of deciding if Neil Entwistle was guilty of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, or not guilty for the murder of Rachel and the murder of baby Lillian. On Wednesday, June 25, 2008, after deliberating for 13 hours, the jury returned to the courtroom with their verdict. Jurors and defendant remain standing. Everyone else may be seated. May I inquire, Your Honor? Yes, please. For a person of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Yes. Please hand it to the court officer. You may record the verdicts. For a person of the jury, in the case of the Commonwealth versus Neil Entwistle, on indictment number 2006-387-001, charging the defendant with murder in the first degree, what say you for a person? Is the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree of Rachel Hunter. On indictment number 2006-387-002, charging the defendant with murder in the first degree, what say you for person is the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree of Lillian Hanwhistle. On indictment number 2006-387-003, charging the defendant with possession of a firearm, what say you for person is the defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty of the offense as charged. By indictment number 2006 387 004, 
charging the defendant with possession of ammunition. What say you four persons defendant guilty or not guilty? Guilty of the offense as charged. So say you four person. Yes. So say you all members of the jury. Yes. Please be seated. The trial was over. Neil Entwistle sat with no emotion on his face as the verdict came in one after the other. His attempt to blame Rachel for those horrific acts of violence had failed. The deaths of Rachel and Lillian Entwistle were devastating to everyone who knew them. At just 27 years old, Rachel had everything ahead of her. Her baby daughter had just nine months of life, her little personality gradually starting to emerge and take shape as she experienced the world around her. Rachel loved being a mom, and she adored her baby daughter. Their sudden horrific deaths made no sense to anyone. Inside their own home, in her bedroom, their lives were ended by two short bursts of a handgun. In seconds, life was extinguished. Rachel's family wanted justice, and they waited two long years to see the man they had trusted stand trial as being the individual behind the gun. Before the judge passed sentence, Rachel's brother Jerome Souza and her mother and stepfather Priscilla and Joe Matarazzo had the opportunity to give impact statements to the court. Their emotional words held the devastation, horror, and betrayal they felt and not only losing Rachel and Lillian, but at the hands of the one man who was supposed to love and protect them. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Our dreams as a parent and grandparent have been shattered by the shameful, selfish act of one person, Neil Entwistle. For him to have tried to hide behind an accusation of murder, suicide of this beautiful woman, and perfect mother is low and despicable. Joe and I, our families, Rachel's friends, students here and in England were sentenced without the luxury of a trial by jury and now must go on with the eternity of emptiness. Suffering does not begin to describe what we have been enduring without our beloved Rachel and Lillian who gave our lives such purpose and meaning. I have lost two generations of my family Neil, you have been judged today by a jury of your peers on earth, but one day you will face the ultimate judgment of your horrific deeds and betrayals. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. When I was in the second grade, Rachel began kindergarten. For her first ride home, she was put on the wrong school bus. The routes had some overlap, they were close, but when I got on the bus and saw that she wasn't there, I went and searched the bus lot till I found her, brought her onto the right bus to get back home. She's my little sister. I know that I had the responsibility of taking care of her. As I grew up, I came to realize other joys big brothers enjoy. She wasn't always as fond of those. Excuse me. We grew up in the company of nearly countless cousins who were close to us in age. And many years, in, and many years after our father's death, when our mother and me remarried, our family grew larger without losing any of the closeness with our other families. Now all of these cousins, brothers, and sisters, as there are no steps in our family, who are all of our generation join the parents, grandparents, and aunts and uncles in missing and mourning Rachel and Lillian every day. Each and every day we have to live with the heartache of Neil's betrayal is brought to our family. The cousins return to visit, we can listen to the stories of the children and their first words, first steps, sports and academic accomplishments. But we cannot talk about how Lillian did in school. 
We cannot share her first word. We can't even remember watching her take her first step. We can only wonder how Lily might have done something. In all of the pictures with Rachel and Lillian, Rachel grows, glows in a way I never saw when we were children. What she was always most proud of was her family. We were always raised to know that family came first. But now when the family comes to visit, we can only recount what Rachel did and speculate on what Lily might have done. We can't tell Lily's cousins what happened to her, or we can tell what happened to her, but we cannot tell them why. All of my cousins, brothers, sisters will have to explain to their children why there's a new picture in the front of their frame at Grammy and Papa's every year, but why Rachel and Lillian's never change. The next generation of my family will have to lose their innocence early, somewhere as little as five months older than Lillian should be, when their parents can no longer put off their inquiries about Rachel and Lillian. And I can never ask Rachel for any help in how to explain any of this. Thank you. The jury has found the defendant guilty of the first-degree murders of Rachel Entwistle and Lillian Entwistle. These crimes are incomprehensible. They defy comprehension because they involve the planned and deliberate murders of the defendant's wife and nine-month-old child in violation of bonds that we recognize as central to our identity of human beings those of husband and wife and parent and child. What is all too clear and easily comprehended is the magnitude of the loss and the pain suffered by Rachel and Lillian Antwistle's extended family and friends, and in particular, Rachel's brother, Jerome Souza, his family, and her mother and stepfather, Priscilla and Joseph Matarazzo. The sentence for first-degree murder is fixed by law. It is life without the possibility of parole. As a matter of law, a sentence for first-degree murder is an actual life sentence. Absent a pardon by the governor, there is no possibility of release from prison. The tiny concrete cell Neil Entwistle had been held in since his arrest would now be replaced with a prison cell designed to hold him for the rest of his life. At 29 years old, Neil was facing the next 50-plus years behind prison walls. His lies had caught up with him. The horrific and brutal acts of violence he unleashed on his wife and young baby cannot be underestimated. To commit such abhorrent acts and then simply cover up their bodies, lock up the house, and walk away is unthinkable. Whether his actions on that day in January 2006, were murders intended to be followed by a suicide, or murders he always intended to try to get away with, will never be known for sure. The rest was the same. His actions took the life of a young woman, in the prime of her life, and her little baby. Still too innocent and young to have an understanding of the world around her. Her father's actions that day now meant she never will. Five months after his trial ended, Neil Entwistle was hastily moved to the medium security Old Colony Correctional Center in Massachusetts. He had received multiple death threats from other inmates. Men who murder their wives and children do not fare well in prison. In the years since, multiple appeals of his sentences have been rejected by the courts. When you build your life on lies, it's only a matter of time before the hammer falls. 
Neil's lies were stacked on top of each other like layers in a card game. He was preoccupied with status and image, wealth and his sexual fantasies. But secrets and lies are one thing. Cold-blooded violent murder is on an entirely other level. His execution of his family, followed by his repeated lies, intent to sell his story and cowardly accusations against Rachel, shows a calculated, egotistical man who thought he could get away with murder. This is the route Neil Entwistle traveled, and his final destination is a prison cell. His life is contained inside barbed-wired fences, concrete walls, rattling metal cages, and numerous guards watching and controlling his every move. Each and every day, he faces the threat of violence against him from other inmates, disgusted at what he did. Justice was done for Rachel and Lillian, who will forever be remembered for their beauty and passion for life. Now it is hoped they can rest in peace.